Welcome to Scale School, my friends. I'm Dan Bolton, and my purpose here is simple. I wanna help you increase the scalability of your coaching or consulting business so as it gets bigger, life gets better. Here we will be talking everything from getting clients, keeping clients, teams, leadership, but most importantly, making scaling simple and fun again. Thanks so much for tuning in and I hope you get a ton out of today's episode. About a year ago, we had the incredible privilege of hosting Alex Hormozzi in our mastermind with a number of our private clients. We actually streamed it into a free group that I'm gonna tell you about in a moment. And it was epic. We covered everything from dialing and acquisition, really getting clear on your offer messaging and exactly the questions you ask yourself if you're feeling unclear about either of those. We also talked about team, how to develop a world-class product, operations so that uh, as you scale your business, as it gets bigger, life gets better and not worse. It was wide ranging, nothing short of incredible, but what else do you expect from Alex Omozi? And it was actually streamed into our free Facebook community. And so if you wanna be a part of uh, that group so you can access things like this and others in the future, by all means, go ahead and check out the link in the description. But apart from that, check out this video. It is wide ranging. in in the things that we cover and it's very, very valuable. So without further ado, here is the interview and training that I did with Mr. Alex Homozi. Alex has become a mentor to many, a friend to me for sure. And uh, we're going to be unpacking his book, $100 million offers. I do not have the hard copy because we are in lockdown right now and it is lost somewhere, but it is right there. This book has been hugely impactful for me and our community in real ways. There's lots of stuff that you can dig into in the internet marketing world that's like exciting. You know, you watch a keynote from Russell Brunson or any of the greats and you're like freaking pumped out of your mind. You believe you're one funnel away. But reading your book, I was like, shit, there's like so much good stuff in here. It feels like it, it's going to work. And then we applied it and lo and behold, uh, it worked. But, but here's where I want to start with you, Alex. So our audience, high ticket entrepreneurs, when I talk to coaches and consultants about improving their offer, they typically think like, no, I'm good. Like clients are getting great results. We just need more calls. We need better marketing. And so I want you to start by sharing like, what's the difference between an offer and a coaching program? And then can you talk to us about why you always want to start with the offer? I actually wrote the third book and the second book first. And I wrote this book, which is now the first book that came out third. Uh, and hopefully you tracked what I just said because <laughs> I barely did. Um, And the reason I had to do that was with each book, I started with the third book and I was like, I actually kind of need this second book to make sense, which was lead generation. I was like, well, I finished the second book and I was like, you know what, if their offer's crap, then that's not going to matter anyway. So I have to start with the offer. And so it kind of went in reverse. And it's because like, as I'm thinking through it, I started thinking about the things that I would immediately want to look at in a business. But usually there's these other weaknesses that are much stronger. And from a speed to money standpoint, changing someone's offer is about the easiest thing that you can do in a business intervention. Um, and the offer touches so many components of the business, right? So it touches the lead generation component. So you get more people who are going to respond than who otherwise would have with a superior offer. You get more people to buy than who otherwise would have. You get higher pricing and more, and more profit as a result of a better offer than you otherwise would. And so with each of those situations, they become multiplicative in their effects on the business. And when you put them all together, the offer is the lever on all of them. And so I could, you know, for most businesses, you could just turn the entire business around by fixing this one thing. 
once that one thing is fixed, then you get into, okay, how much, how many different channels can we have access to to generate leads? You know, the third book is money model. So how many different ways can we, can we monetize the customer to increase our, you know, our, our cash conversion cycle, or basically how quickly we return a dollar so we can spend more uh, on the acquisition, which is the third book. The reason we start with the offer is because I think in the marketing community at large, and I say that uh, because just about here, everybody here is in the marketing community at large. Um, this book, I think was a hit. At least I perceive it as a hit um, because it was the only book that I think is talks about the product. And so no one talks about product in the marketing community. And so I think it seems so foreign to many people, but if you look in the software world, they only talk about product and they don't care at all about marketing um, because they know, and if you will allow me to expand on this for a quick second, and then we can, uh, I'll get into the questions. I'm gonna, I'll, I'll share something with you that's been very, very um, impactful for me. So a lot of people look at Gym Launch and they try and understand the success behind the company. And for context for everyone here, um, the first year I was in business in Gym Launch, uh, at least once we switched to the licensing model, we took home $17 million in profit for perspective. Let me pause for a second. It was as fucking insane for me as it might sound to you. <laughs> so it is not lost on me. And we went from 3 million in profit the year before to 17. Um, and a lot of people looked at our funnels. They thought, Alex, you know, Alex is a sales genie or it's, 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 our, it's our creative, it's our hooks. It's all, it's all these things. And many people try to copy them. But no one was able to duplicate the numbers and the success and the scale. Um, and it was because the product was superior. I mean, I see Mark was here. I know Mark was one of our early clients. He had a gym. I guess now he's, he's doing high ticket, which is awesome. The average client made $30,000 in their first 30 days. That was the average, which means half of people did better than that. And so if you look at the internet marketing community at large, I would, I would doubt that there are many offers that produce that kind of result. And so we were able to get 36 to one return on advertising. And actually the first year we got hundred to one return on our advertising um, because honestly, the advertising wasn't the thing that was doing the vast majority of the work. It was word of mouth. It was referrals. And so people might see the ad, but they had heard about it in three or four other places. And I'm told that the book is having a similar effect. It's on people's news feeds and things like that. And for context, everyone here, there's no book funnel. There's no upsells. I've spent no dollars on advertising and it sells a thousand copies a day right now with no advertising. I got reached out to people were like, hey man, how are you, how'd you achieve this organic something with the, with the book? And I was like, we just try to write a really good book. Um, and I think that it's, it's, it's often overlooked. And so this is the piece that I'll, I'll finish with and then we'll, we, can, we can rock in. But if you think about the six acquisition channels that exist for new clients, right? You've got paid media, which is advertising of any kind. You've got owned media, which is your lists of all your people. You've got earned media, which is the platforms that will distribute your stuff organically. Like we're on Facebook right now. So this is an organic audience. That's earned media, right? And then you've got the three people based, which is you got manual outbound, uh, you've got affiliates, and then you've got referrals and word of mouth. Of those six that I just named, five of them are linear in nature. What I mean by that is that if I put $100 in, I get a set or fixed ratio back. So I put 100 in, I get 1,000 out. Or I do 100 calls and I get X appointments, right? It's the same if there's a fixed ratio and then you just increase in scale, right? And with most of those, they're diminishing in nature in terms of the more scale you add, the return ratio diminishes. With re referrals, word of mouth, it is quadratic, which means it's exponential. And so it is the hardest one to achieve, but once you achieve it, it is the one that will pay you so handsomely that it is worth the disproportionate investment of time. And the difference between a good book and a great book is large. Just between a great book, an exceptional or remarkable book, or remark worthy, as in it was so good that you had to tell someone about it, is even harder, right? But that extra 
uh, the extra amount, the extra increment of return yields outsized returns in terms of the practical use of that value. And so I think that for us, so many people just, you know, slap a bunch of videos together and say, this is my course, uh, rather than having the in-depth or trench knowledge to go from being good to great or going from great to being exceptional. Um, and I will tell you that having now, <laughs> which is weird, I, I feel like uh, an older person in the internet marketing space now, which is hilarious in terms of years uh, in it rather than age. Um, the people who, who continue uh, to live on uh, and not fizzle and pop are the ones who have superior product. Because usually the people who do not uh, wither from the stress or the pressure of unhappy high ticket clients. And so the only way you can weather that emotionally, unless you have no conscience, is by having a superior product and having intentions of truly always improving the product so that you can weather those storms because you and only you can know your intentions. I think that would be at least my, my word to this. And my test with acquisition.com, which if you read in the book, is kind of the venture that, that I've been focusing on for the last year. My goal with that business, or really the portfolio of businesses, is to grow it exclusively off of inbound because of the other five channels, I've grown each of those to multiple eight figures in terms of how much I've been able to generate from them. But I have never done um, one off of kind of earned media and purely inbound. And so um, that was the goal. And in order to do that, we had to make sure that the product was truly exceptional. And I can tell you that of the people that make much more money than me, it seems to be a constant in that it is a one-time investment to make a superior product that has compounding returns. Most of the wealthiest people that I know try and invest in something one time that will pay them forever. Whereas most of the poorest people I know try and consistently have to do things that they have to do over and over and over and over again. You have to make new campaigns. You have to make new reach outs. You have to make new phone calls. Those are all things that you have to do in order to keep going. And as soon as you stop them, the business ends. But if the product is superior, the product will run on its own. And coincidentally, the profit is extremely great because you have no cost of acquisition. You touched on a couple of things there and obviously a big focus of what you just said is around superior product. But I would say, um, I 100% agree, but I would say also people can't uh, distinguish the fact between the reality of the quality of a product yep. and the deception in the market, right? So can you 100%. talk a bit more about how your product is both your offer and it's not, right? It's not just about adding two more coaching calls a week. It's not like <laughs> I have my community on Facebook or some other platform. Can you talk a bit more about like yeah. what that looks like? With the offer, it's kind of it, it's kind of this really interesting thing of the it's the bridge between prospect and client, right? And so it has components of both sides. It has components of promotion embedded within it, but it also has components of product. And so the offer is really communicating uh, across the bridge what it's like to be a client to a prospect. And so we're thinking about what are the problems, what are every single problem, both known and unknown. And little pro tip, because if you read the book, that's how I do it. Uh, Pro tip for everybody, if you want to include bonuses, include one or two bonuses that solve a problem that only occurs upon success. So for example, if I was taking on uh, a company for acquisition.com, then a bonus might be, I'll also you know, introduce you to all my tax uh, shelter people, I'll also introduce you to my legal team, I'll also introduce you to my investor people who will help you um, keep more of the money that we're going to be making. Right? So we're going to solve a problem that's going to assume success. And so all of a sudden, your prospect is going to have a higher belief in that they're going to achieve it because why? what other reason would you be solving problems uh, that, that assume success, right? unless people were being successful? To circle back to what you were saying earlier, Dan, the perception right, of the product um, has to be the thing that appears valuable. And your ability to do that will also be predicated on the true value of the product. So it is, it is both ways, right? Um, 
But the idea is, and I think this might be contrary to some of the things that are in the internet marketing community, is that I believe that you should solve every prospect's problem. Most things operate like a pipeline. And so if you have 100 steps, if you miss 99, it still won't work. It's like a car engine. Like, is there a more important part in the car engine than another part? Well, they're all required. So they are requisite pieces. And I think most times people solve one or two of the things. They might bring an engine. Uh, and they might bring gasoline, but they don't have wheels or they don't have spokes or they might not even have the nuts on the wheels, right, uh, to keep them on. And so it's really thinking through. And I think that's where the, the depth of knowledge is so important, where, like I tell the story and hopefully it'll illustrate the point here. I believe in doing the really ugly, unscalable stuff first so that you can have the depth of knowledge to, to, to do the scalable thing. A lot of people want to jump the gun and go straight to, I mean, I can't tell you the amount of times I've talked to, quote, agency owners who are like, man, these realtors can't make money on my leads. And I actually had a, 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 an agency that I worked with for almost a year on our software platform. Um, and every month I would just say, why don't you just get a real estate license and actually work your leads? And finally, he did it. And in his first month, he made five times more money than he did in the three years prior because he actually knew what the fuck he was talking about. Right. And so gym launch became as big as it was because I spent two years on the road launching 33 different gyms in different markets in person working the front desk. So we knew the nuances and the differences of what time of day to call and what cadence and what text to use in this type of market, what type to use in this type of market. And we were able to troubleshoot those things so easily and successfully that our clients saw a disproportionate amount of success. And then in the sales call and when in creating the offer, we could say, hey, if you're, if you're familiar with Oren Claff, he talks about a flash roll, right, which is where you talk about all these little features and problems that they haven't even encountered yet that you have already solved. And then in so doing, you demonstrate such superior expertise to the person that they immediately trust you as an authority. And then all of a sudden, the remainder of the conversation is very easy because they know that they don't even have the perspective from which to make a judgment. They transfer that, that authority over to you to make the judgment on their behalf. So I want you to kind of go deeper on something you just said, because uh, tied to that, I've heard you talk about this a lot, which is that people try and solve problems that don't exist when it comes to the scalability of their offer. If they're scared to offer too much and they have zero clients or few clients, they go, I just don't know how this is going to look at 50. And so can you talk about uh, the kind of those spectrums of like easy to sell, hard to sell, easy yeah. to deliver, hard to deliver? So I think that most entrepreneurs would be best served, especially in the beginning. And so it's hard to make broad sweeping statements because there's always exceptions to them. But by and large, most entrepreneurs who are probably in this community selling high ticket coaching services would be best served selling a less scalable offer at higher ticket first, and then piece by piece, removing pieces that are less scalable. And so you do that because you give higher touch to clients, you have more, more profit uh, in your acquisition because most done for you models, for example, um, if done properly, I'm not saying agency models because I'm not a big fan of agency models, but um, most done for you models, if done properly, should yield excess cash and the issue becomes operational fulfillment, right? Which is how I prefer to have my bottleneck in the operations and scale than in demand generation. That is just my preference. Some people prefer it different ways. I prefer it that way. Um, and so the easier something is to sell in general, which is going to require more handholding on your part, more services, more things, the easier it is to sell, right? On the flip side, if you just sell a course via webinar, it becomes very, very difficult to sell. In general, you have to have very, very high persuasive abilities in order to sell that and a pretty unique opportunity, right? If you're selling how to make, how to run Facebook ads, I think that time has somewhat come and gone, right? And so uh, the idea is, I would prefer to be on the easier to sell part of the spectrum, gain the experience, generate the cash flow, and then use the cash for to solve future problems of scale. Um, and I think that that is a better sequence that has a higher likelihood of success for most people. 
Yeah, and I would say there's a huge assumption baked into that, which comes um, down to a really wildly uncommon opinion you have, which is on pricing. Because all of that assumes that you're going to have then excess cash and enough to deliver uh, and that it's priced right. So can you talk a bit more about pricing? Because I think for most people, we do what Dan Kennedy calls the WAG pricing model, which is just the wild ass guess or the industry norm, right? Where you just go like, what does this person do? What does this person do? Great. I'll be somewhere in the middle or a little bit cheaper. Yeah, so when we got into that, you know, in our first coaching business, um, which was obviously Gym Launch, we, uh, the highest price person at the time was 5K. Uh, the lowest price people were kind of agencies doing 500 bucks a month. So that was kind of the range of the marketplace. And so when we came in, our front end program was 16K. Our back end program was actually a three-year 126K program. So the pricing was so vastly different than everyone else that it caused prospects to take pause and say, there must be something different going on here. Pause there. And then if you think about what a lot of people are seeing with the book, or at least I'm told, is that the book's kind of all over a lot of people's news feeds. Imagine you have this kind of pricing with all of this word of mouth that's surrounding it, and then it creates this allure. Right. And so the idea is that we have to charge so much in order to get the, co- the clients and prospects more invested because, A, in a very real way, price confers value. Right. So there's a story that's in the book, but it's, it's, it's basically if you had three people t- thread, try three different wines, the high price, the middle price, and the low price, and then rate them, most people rate the highest price wine the best. But the thing is, is that when they do these studies, they actually make all three wines the same. And so in a very real way, price does confer value to your product. That's number one. Number two is that if you change the quality or increase the quality of your prospects, you will increase the quality of your products. So what I mean by that is if I am working with uh, somebody who's making $5 million a year, right? And then I give them a book, right, Dan? (laughs) All of a sudden, that book to Dan is worth $2 million this year, right? If I give that to somebody who's never started a business before, the book might be worth some inspiration, And so there's a very real difference in the value that my product delivered based on the quality of my prospect, independent of the change in my product. And so the second point is that if you change and increase the quality of your prospects, you can also charge a concurrently higher price based on the value that is true that you were delivering to that person. The third piece is that I like having pricing power in general because there is a strong strategic advantage to being higher priced. I just named two of them, right? in the marketplace. But one of the biggest ones is that you have so much more gross profit left over that A, you can spend more on the acquisition, but B, you can do things that other people can't. And so you further eliminate or, or, or separate yourself from the competition by being able to provide things that no one else can, right? So for example, in the gym launch world, because we had a lot of clients, or we still continue to have a lot of clients that are in the same markets, we were able to spend 50000 a month every month on testing advertisements. And then we would just license those ads out to all of the facilities across, right? No one else could do that because I had the spare cash that I could just put into marketing and then only hand scratch off lottery winners to them that they could just go and cash in, right? Because they already knew they worked. And so I could hire a team just to build all this stuff for them. And there weren't even franchisors at that time that we were doing that stuff. And honestly, they still don't. And so we're able to still run a very high gross profit on even that product line. And so the idea is like, how can I do things that no one else can do? And the thing is, is I would start with the price first. Now, obviously it has to be based in reality in terms of the value you can provide. But a lot of times with the excess gross profit, you can in a very real way, provide more value. And so that's why in the book, I like to anchor the pricing in the beginning because that just kind of sets the stage. But then when we get into the value creation side of it, it's like, how can I, how can I make it so likely that they are successful? 
How can I get them to be successful in half the time? And how can I do it so I can eliminate effort and sacrifice? And for those of you who don't know the difference between effort and sacrifice, effort is what someone has to do that they don't want to do that they weren't doing before they started working with you. Sacrifice is when they have to stop doing something that they enjoy doing that they were doing before they started working with you that they can no longer do. And so the idea is how can I eliminate the effort and sacrifice, cut the time in half, and then increase the perceived likelihood that they're going to achieve the result that they want. And so that was kind of the basis. I mean, in general, if there was one summary picture for the book in terms of how to create value, it's the value equation. And so the remainder of the book is basically the execution to the tactics around how do we actually do this? How do we create a dream outcome that's appealing to the person, right? Making a million dollars for most men is more appealing than being more handsome. Not saying that they don't want both, but they probably want one more. And in a, in a real way, a lot of guys would spend $500,000 to make a million dollars, but probably wouldn't spend $500,000 to be more handsome. Or maybe they would, but it depends on their income, right? Perceived likelihood of achievement. I'll give you an example here. So if, if you guys were, if you had your, if for, I see a lot of guys on here, but if your wife were getting uh, plastic surgery or you were getting plastic surgery, whatever, right? And you have two surgeons that have the exact same, they're going to do the exact same surgery on you, right? The outcome's the same now. So I'm, I'm controlling for the outcome and showing you a different piece of the value equation. If one of them was about to do their first surgery ever out of medical school, and the other one was on their 10,000th surgery in their career, which of them would you rather work with? This one. Which one would you rather pay more? This one. You probably asked this guy to pay you because you were his first surgery, right? And so in a very real way, the perceived likelihood of achievement increases the value independent of the actual service being delivered. And so that is why it's the second thing. Now, most marketers focus all their attention on the top side of the equation. This is what I did for the first few years of my career when I was at my gyms, when I sold weight loss, and then even in the beginning of gym launch, it was all about how much money you're going to make and then fuck loads of testimonials. How much money you're going to make, fuck loads of testimonials. But there are other ways to increase perceived likelihood of achievement, which is kind of goes back to that flash roll argument I was saying earlier, which is here are all the things that you didn't even think about that I have already handled. Uh, on your journey that you didn't even foresee, which then shows my expertise that I know what I'm doing. And so the goal is to increase these as much as possible. Now, the second half of the equation are the detractors. It, in a very real way, in my opinion, the bottom side of the equation is actually more powerful in persuasion than the top side. And the reason is because it's very easy to make claims. It's very easy to talk about the dream outcome, right? But it's much more difficult to actually decrease the time delay, which is why for us, one of the major KPIs we've always had as a company is how much cash someone generates in the first 14 days working with us, right? And so for us, we drive towards that equation. And for us right now, for example, the average cash collected in the first 14 days is 15,500, right? For our client, that is the average, right? And so with that, I can have a big outcome in the first you know, 14 days. So they have a very short time delay between when they, when they buy something and they begin to start experiencing the results, right? And so I'll give you a simple way of providing value. Look at what everyone else is doing in the market and do it in half the time, right? If all of a sudden, for example, as an extreme version of this, I would say, hey, I'm selling a weight loss product. I use weight loss because everyone understands it, all right? And as soon as you click this, you, look at you, you, you pull your shirt up and you have a six pack right? You buy my six pack program, you click purchase and you have a six pack immediately. How valuable would that product be? Super Extraordinarily, <laughs> right? <laughs> and so the idea is we made the product more valuable, not by changing the outcome, not by changing the perceived like of achievement, but by simply changing the time in which it took to achieve the outcome that we was promised. And so as a marketing example, for example, if I had a, a marketing agency, again, which I'm not a huge fan of, but if you had a marketing agency that was commoditized and service-based, right? If I were trying to provide more value, I would say as soon as, as soon as the contract is signed, if the prospect's phone rang 
figuratively, or their inbox, you know, was filled and they got a book call immediately with a qualified prospect that was booked 30 minutes after they got off the phone with you, how much more valuable would that be than somebody that says, hey, it's going to take 30 days to ramp up. It'll take another 30 days to start seeing results. It'll take 30 days after that for you to recoup and break even. And then by month six, I've already lost you, right? So much less valuable. And so the idea is the time delay component is a massive area of value. And if you look at the biggest companies in the world, they look at time as one of the major drivers of value. Time is the thing that most people value more than anything. Uber came in because it was more convenient, right? Netflix came in because it was more convenient than doing the other things, right? Which also ties into the second part of the bottom equation, which is effort and sacrifice, right? And so the idea is, again, if I, like weight loss again, I'll just use the example. We, we ask Susie, right, to give up waking up, you know, sleeping in, right? Cause she's got to wake up early to go to the gym, right? Now she's sore every day. So now she's got, she's got effort and sacrifice that are associated. She can't eat any of the foods that she likes anymore. She's got to eat separate from her family. Her kids are making fun of her. She goes out and she misses her. She can't drink champagne at her, at her, at her sister's wedding. On top of that, all like everything that she loves about life is gone. Right. And, and here's the best part. It's going to take her 12 months to maybe look a little better, but still not be at her goal. So no wonder it's so fucking hard to sell. And so the idea is how can we eliminate as many of these barriers as possible in the effort and sacrifice component so that we can make it as, as instant and as fast for them. And the reason I made it a fraction is because in theory, if you can get the bottom side of the equation to zero, as in it's instant and there's no effort and no sacrifice, then you have an infinitely valuable product, right? And if you think about like what Amazon's doing, right? They're getting so close to literally you just like click one button on your phone or maybe it's, I mean, very soon it'll just be you talk out loud. Your phone will hear you through Alexis, Alexa, and then a drone drops it off at your, at your house two hours later. It, they are shrinking that gap, the effort and sacrifice and the, and the time delay so much that the value becomes so infinite, infinite. And that's why they're becoming such a behemoth, right? And so when I think about products and how do we create value, because a lot of people throw the term out, right? They're like, God, got to give value, got to create value. But people are like, what is value? Like, and so this is my best attempt at, at, at writing down or at least compartmentalizing what I believe value to be in an equation. So you can look at your own products and say, how do we measure up here and perceive likelihood? How do we measure up here in effort and sacrifice? How can we make things happen faster for them? Is there a dream outcome that we can communicate in a way that's more compelling or more relatable? I'll give you a hack. So one of the things that we did on our onboarding process that we switched was, um, so, our, so our sales team takes notes during sales calls and they close the sale and they transfer over to the onboarding team. And so for a very long time, it was just, hey, so it says, seems here that your goal is you're trying to make an extra $10,000 a month. Awesome. That's freaking help you do. Cool. And so they were already impressed because we actually read the notes that were from the sales call. Mind blowing, right? But it increased their perceived likelihood of achievement because they're like, oh, these people are buttoned up, right? Crazy, by the way, to have a handoff between sales and the first person they talk to after they give you money. Anyways, we started doing was we started asking them on the sales calls, of course, what is that like? Why is that? Why is $10,000 the number? Why is that meaningful for you? Why not? Why not 20,000? Why not 5,000? Right? Like, was there, is there something as a result of having $10,000 that is going to change in your life in one way or another? Because if there weren't, then there, they, there'd be no point in even making the money. And so then they tell you the real reason, which is, uh, you know, we've got two kids and I really wish my wife could be at home with them, whatever. Right. And so what we do in the onboarding call is now we can tie more accurately. Hey, so I, it's, it shows here that what you're trying to do is trying to retire your wife, all right? So that's what we're going to try and help you do here with the program. And what I need you to do in order to do that is you got to follow these steps. So now all of a sudden we got way higher buy-in, way higher compliance. And we actually had higher conversions on the back end simply by changing the onboarding process and not even changing the product. You could make the argument that changing the onboarding process is a part of the product, but hopefully you understand my point. So if you can more accurately depict the dream outcome to your prospect, they will value it in a better way.
it'll also increase the perceived likelihood. That was super good, man. And I, I want to get your thoughts on something that I know that a good portion of the 130 people with us right now are probably thinking, which is that they need to upgrade their market. Oh, I want to charge more money. So I'm going to go find the people that have more money. And I can't tell you how often people like, you know, what are you qualifying for and say the DMs to get someone onto a call? They're like, oh, they've got to be making six figures. I'm like, why? And they're like, because they, they, you know, it's easier for them to pay for my program, whatever it might be. Can you talk really quickly about niche slapping, which is a big thing for us in the coaching space. And then also the economics behind your pricing of gym launch and how much money the average gym owner makes. Yeah. So those are a couple of things. So uh, I'll start in reverse order of what I remember from the question. So, uh, so the average gym owner makes uh, $29.50 a month in take-home income on about a $300,000 a year uh, uh, business, right? Brick and mortar. And so you're talking about $36,000 a year, roughly um, in take-home income. It depends on the source of the data, but it's around 30 to 36. And so our program was 16,000 upfront, right? Um, and then the back end program was 42,000, which is literally more than someone makes in a year. And so the, the idea, so I'm not against you finding higher quality prospects. If you can make your product so good that it will pay for itself immediately, then that is where you really unlock basically unlimited money, right? If you can help people actually make the money to pay for your program, rather than asking them to pay for the program and then get the result, you're, you're tapping into like the universe, right? You don't, you don't, there's no, there's no limit on the amount of money that you can make. And the reason that we were able to make so much is because we made so many people so much money. Like that's the real, like there's no other secret to that. Like we made a lot of people a lot of money. And as a result of that, they were happy to pay us for the money that we were making them. Most people couldn't afford, I would say 50% of the gyms that we sign up can't afford the next month's payment if we don't make them money. So we have to make the money, which is why most gym competitors have, who've entered the space have never been able to get to a 10th of our size, right? It's because they, they weren't able to operationalize the value the way we were able to. So that's, that's in terms of like the, the value compared to the price in terms of the income of the person. In terms of niche lapping, the simplest answer I can give you might be, might be a story. So I was talking to, again, agency owner, but I guess we live in the marketing world, right? Different, different agencies. This is, an, this is actually an agency coach, all right? So he coaches agencies. He's like, hey, I'm getting all these DMs about doing general business. Um, do you think I should go into general business? And I said, I think that's a terrible idea. There was a couple of reasons. One, because I didn't think he had earned it yet. Um, but second, and probably more importantly, the question is, I was like, have you reached the, the market cap? And the answer is no, of course not. Doing $5 million a year in an industry that does 20 billion or 50 billion or whatever it is in the entire marketing agency space, he's probably not pretty close, right? And so he had risen to his level of incompetence. And so it didn't really matter him switching the niche that he was going to. He was just going to rise up to his next level of incompetence, which is going to be the same as what it is now. But more realistically, he would drop to two and a half on here, raise to two and a half on here, now be CEO of two businesses, which you can only have like, think about this. How many publicly traded companies have a CEO that is being CEO of Home Depot and CEO of Coca-Cola? He's like, well, I'm, sh- I'm doing both, right? I'm, t- I'm running two companies because uh, I'm going to figure out which one explodes. It's fucking stupid, right? It's retarded. And yet we do it all the time as entrepreneurs. And so you have to pick and then you have to commit. And then the hardships that you experience are the things that you have to perceive, or at least for me, that I perceive as barriers that no one else will go through. Barriers that when I encounter them, once I solve them, someone else who comes behind me will encounter them and not know how to solve them. And the more of these rungs that I pass, the more difficult it is for someone to achieve the same thing. And so at at, at any of the markets, I tend to ask when people come to me, I say, what, like, let's say somebody's making $5 billion a year. I would just ask them because they're like, hey, man, I'm thinking about switching switching markets. And I'm like, well, why? They're like, well, I want to make more money. I'm like, cool. 
I'm like, well, why don't you just double your business and still have one business? And then inevitably with enough questions, it's the answer becomes because I just don't know how, right? It's like, well, then let's solve that problem and then grow the business rather than just feed our egos and have a quick win because you have a couple DMs of people who said they want general business coaching, which will then inevitably flounder once you get into the real space against dudes who make way more money than you are much better at business. And so like the reason you niche down is because you don't want to, you don't want to fight against bigger competitors. There is a time to become Tony Robbins, right? But most people aren't there. And so it's much better to cater your marketing and your messaging and your product to an individual and in so doing provide outsized returns and value, which you can then capitalize on. Right. If I had a generic Facebook ads program five years ago, I might have made a few million dollars. But because I was able to say, hey, I'm going to copy and paste this. Here's every fucking step of this process to turn eyeballs into gold immediately because I didn't have to tailor it. Right. Everything out of the box was exactly the way it needed to be for that prospect. Right. So nothing else needed to change. Whereas the more wiggle you have in your product because it's individualized and variable between markets and avatars and things like that, then all of a sudden your, your value drops because you can provide, because you're providing less of it in a very real way. Because otherwise every single one of the clients should have a personally catered uh, program, but you can't do that because you're not committing to a niche. Yeah. Chris just said, there's so much to unpack here. It hurts. Um, <laughs> there, there was someone here that I know that's uh, been in our pipeline for uh, 50 years old, uh, runs a real estate coaching company. He's just like, this live is changing my life. So when we're talking about an offer, I think most everyone gets how this impacts the very end of their sales and marketing process in that short time at the end of a call where we go, I think I can help. Would you like me to share a bit more about what that would look like, right? And, and, and that's what we think that you're telling us to do is create something that makes that part really easy. And of course, mm-hmm. having a great offer makes that part easier. How so, do you feel like we should be thinking about and utilizing a Grand Slam offer to improve our marketing? Is it simply mm-hmm. talking more about what it is that we do? How do you think about that? I think each of the bonuses that I was talking about, kind of in that flash roll of all of the, all of the problems that your prospect doesn't perceive yet, like that, in my opinion, B2B advertising is all about demonstrating expertise in advance. When you're creating a Grand Slam offer, you have so many problems that are being solved that you can speak to them. And ideally, I would like to speak to them in a way that I know my competition is not solving them. And so by doing that, I'm strengthening myself and at the same time throwing rocks against my competitors because I know that I'm solving problems that they aren't. And I'm doing that because I've actually done it and they have not. And they're making it up because they're looking because they bought a course on how to be a guru and they never actually did shit. Right. And so, and many of your competitors are the same way. Of course, not you because you're listening to this and that's not you, of course, but other people, other people, your competitors, right, are like that. Right. And so, the way to, to, to get around that and be able to use the offer is to, again, have the in depth knowledge of every single problem that's going to happen. And then your marketing takes on its own unique language because everyone else tries to talk in features and benefits and promises. And you can think this is what it means. But when you can talk about the problems in a very specific way because you've experienced them, because you went through it, because you know that Susie's always going to fucking complain about the music in the gym and the, the bathrooms aren't clean enough. Mark might get a laugh out of that. Only a gym owner would know that. But a marketer who's never been a gym owner wouldn't know that, right? Fucking Susie, right? Exactly. The point is, is that if you know the pains, then in your marketing, my offer is going to have components, right? So I might cover some of those aspects that I know are nuanced pains and solve problems that no one else is solving because I'm talking about problems no one else is talking about because I actually did it. And I'm saying I as all of us, not not me specifically. Tell us about your marketing plan right now and what we can learn from it. 
because you're giving away all this stuff for free. And yeah. I think there is this huge lie in our industry, which is we we should keep our marketing like we we hear like nifty things like we we show our know-how but give no how, right? And so it's like, oh, we demonstrate, we know what we're talking about, but we actually help yeah. no one. And hopefully they're, you know, agitated enough, they jump on a call and you're kind of taking this very different approach. And, and in my experience with gym launch marketing, it's always been different. You've actually mm-hmm. provided a stack of value up front, so much so that probably makes competitors who provide that same stuff or similar for paid <laughs> in their program yeah. pretty scared. So, so coach us on that for a second. We all do marketing, whether it's organic or paid. How should we be yeah. thinking about demonstrating value and giving stuff away? Can we hold on there? Because I want to add one thing to the last question that I think would be a really good thought. So from the offer perspective to affect marketing, I want to give an extreme example because it came to me as you were saying that. If you said, I will get you this outcome for free, guaranteed, or I'll pay you twice as much as you paid me, how difficult do you think it will be to acquire customers? Not hard. It wouldn't be hard right? At all. And so what ended up happening would be the bottleneck would become your operational, your operations, right? Isn't that so much better of a problem? Because then you have flow that you can then consistently test things on and fix the operations, right? As you fuck up, which you inevitably will in the beginning, and then you eventually get it right. And the other piece of that is that's an extreme example of like, it's free. I'll get you this crazy outcome. And if you don't, I'll pay you twice as much. And if you're like, Alex, that's insane. What do you think I did for two years flying out to gyms for no cost to them? I literally sat at their front desk for three and a half weeks in the middle of nowhere, spent my own money on advertising, paid for my own hotel, my own flights, made the calls, made the sales myself, did the onboarding and introduction for the nutrition plans where I'd sell them supplements. And I did all of that and the gym owner had to do anything. So if you're like, this guy's saying something that's totally unreasonable, I did it for two years. And so like... I say that because I really do believe in this, right? And so if you, the idea is how can I give away a crazy offer that no one would say no to and think, how can I get no one to say no to this, right? And if you're afraid of it, that's okay. That's fear, you know, I'll just, I'll leave it at that bad. Anyways, and so if you want to, right, if you want, if you want to pussy out a little bit, you can just take one step back and say, okay, well, everyone would say yes to this. Maybe 90% of people say yes to this. And this is something that I'm willing to do. Okay, cool. Right. And so the idea is how, how few of these pieces can I peel back versus the other extreme, which is, Hey, buy my thing. Maybe you get results. Maybe you don't, I don't care. I got paid either way. It's your fault, which is for the most part, most coaching offers. Think about that. Right. And if you're like, man, I'm not confident enough that we're going to be able to deliver on those promises, then fix the fucking product. Right. And stop selling the shit you're selling. Well, it's like, then why are you selling it to begin with? If you can't have the strong offer and the strong guarantee behind it, then the product sucks. Then you're never going to make a ton of money because the product sucks and you're never going to be able to outmarket it. And here's a mind fuck for you. All right. So I told you that you have a compound. There's six channels, right? And one of them compounds and it's quadratic. The reason, the other reason so many of the people end up fizzling and popping when they become gurus is because the word of mouth marketing that is working against them outpaces them. They sold enough people and enough people told enough people about how much their shit sucked that no one responds to their ads anymore. Because you either have a positive quadratic force behind you that is just feeding you every day, or you have a negative quadratic force behind you. But the word of mouth is always happening. It's just whether you're controlling it or not, or whether you know about it or not. And so anyways, I just wanted to touch on that based on the last question. But the question that you just asked, <laughs> um, just repeat it real quick, just for everybody on here. Well, I just want to touch on something you just said, which is 
this solves the age old challenge uh, that people are especially experiencing now, which is the coaching industry is more saturated than it's ever been. Right. And there are 101 people that are promising the same thing that have the same deliverables in their program, more or less. And you're now trying to figure out how to stand out of the marketplace. And the answer is like, be better. Like, that's really what I'm hearing you say. It's not like we're not trying to be better wordsmiths or write greater copy. It's like actually create a product that's superior. So marketing is about different. Business is about better. So everyone talks about blue ocean, but you don't need to be blue ocean in the product. The product just needs to be better. And so many times the incremental improvements over time do add up and they do create outsized returns. It's just hard because it's boring. No one's like, oh man, we should improve our onboarding process. That's boring. That's not sexy. But you do a hundred of those and all of a sudden the vast majority of your clients are getting results, right? And then all of a sudden they're like, no, this program's awesome. When someone hears about it, they tell their friends. And then that friend might not immediately sign up, but they might go buy your book. They might go join your group, right? Or they might actually now respond to the ad that they've seen 10 times and be like, well, I did hear something about Dan. So maybe I will check it out. So in my opinion, I think the word of mouth actually becomes the first tip of the domino And the paid ads actually kind of function as, as retargeting. Even if it's cold, you just don't know that they have now been, they've now touched your brand in some way. And once they've had one word of mouth or two word of mouth, now they will respond to the ad that is cold traffic. And as far as hieros or whatever, you know, whatever your tracking is right in your, in that thing, it looks like it's new, but it's not, they already got touched in other ways and then walked in. So I think much more in terms of differentiating yourself in the marketplace is you have to have a parallel marketing campaign that is going on, on your behalf behind the scenes. And um, one of the questions that I think is very haunting, but I think is very powerful is right now, if I, if I were the the God of, of marketing, right? Thor God of marketing, right? And I said, right now, you can get no more customers from any, any, any acquisition methods you're using. All right. So you can't do, you can't do affiliates. You can't do paid ads. You can't do reach outs. You can't do any of that stuff. All right. The only way you can get new customers is if your existing customers bring you more customers, how different would the experience you have with your customers look if that was the only way you could get new clients. And if you can think right now, how different it would look, how much interaction you would have, how much support would be there, how you'd make sure everyone was successful then change that now. And then they will come. So going back to that question of giving away too much and this temptation to be really shallow in our marketing and and kind of flex our expert muscles, but not enough to actually help people. You take a very different approach. Coach us on that. Um, It's kind of like the, the, the age old, like what happens if I train an employee and then they leave? It's like, well, what happens if you never train them and they stay? Right. And so it just faces the inevitability that you're like, you got to train all your employees, right? Or you got to invest in all your employees. And I think you can use the same kind of thought process, which is, well, 99% of people, what if I give them all this value and they don't buy, right? Well, it's like, what if you give them no value, right? And all they consume is your fluff. And so it's been my opinion that 99% of the marketplace will never buy from it. And so there's the, there's the human side of it and then there's the money side. So first, just touching on the human side of it, I sleep better at night knowing, or at least believing that more people benefit from the stuff that we give out, right? I feel like that's a net positive just in general, right? So that, and I think most entrepreneurs I talk to, they say, hey, I wanna make an impact. Hey, I wanna help people to the degree which that's true, I don't know, but whatever, it sounds nice. And so I think that if that is true for you, then why not give away more? Um, and a recent goal for myself as a total tangent, but I'm going to go for it anyways, is to, is to die the man who gave the most. Um, and that's, uh, maybe I'll never achieve that, but it's a nice goal for me. Um, on the money side, a couple of things. One is if you give enough, you don't have to ask. So you've heard of the jab, 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 right hook thing, right? 
I'm going to tell you a real fucking secret. You can just jab, jab, jab and never right hook and people will just lay down and say you win. The amount of DMs I get a day that offer me between 50 and $250,000 for a day or an hour per day is staggering. I, that's not an offer I have. That's not a thing. And I don't sell it, right? But because there's been enough value that they believe has been, I, I, there's a threshold that has been met or surpassed. And they're like, and most people have reciprocity. Most people are normal people. And if they receive something, they want to give something back. And the idea behind marketing, in my opinion, is to trigger that in people. Is how can I give them so much that they would feel unreasonable or guilty to not pay me? And I can't tell you the amount of times where I had somebody who read the gym launch book, which is the first book I wrote a few years ago for the gym industry. And uh, they read the book and they're like, dude, your book tripled my business. I, I'm here a year later and um, I just, I had to, you know, I, I had to see what it, he's like, you could do nothing and I would just be happy to, to sign up, right? And I think that in terms of the fear of giving stuff away, it's pure scarcity. And I'll define that because I think scarcity and abundance are thrown around a lot in the marketing community, but no one actually like defines it kind of like value. And so my definition of abundance is, or being abundant, is being someone who cannot be controlled because they need nothing. And so if I don't need anything, you cannot incentivize me and therefore I cannot be controlled, which means I'm purely autonomous, which means I don't need to give you anything to get something back because I don't need what you have. And so I think what ends up happening when you do this very value, value centric or value first approach is that you inevitably end up playing the long game. And as a further tangent, which hopefully Dan will let me expound upon, I think that one of the most under-talked about concepts in the marketplace is goodwill. And I think that goodwill compounds. And I think it compounds faster than revenue. You can get outsized returns on providing value into a pool of a marketplace. And that goodwill will multiply far faster than your asking will. And if you can hold off long enough, you won't ever need to ask. You can just keep giving. And so the idea of like, when am I giving enough is silly. Like give everything you have. And the reality is that most of the stuff you have, and I'm saying this not as a pejorative statement, I'm saying this just in general, most of the stuff you have might not be that good. And what it will do is it will force you to get better. And if there's ever been like a single consolidated statement of like what Alex believes about making money, it's people just need to be much better than they are. And most people suck at most things they do, especially the things they think they're good at. A lot of you probably would think your competitors are not that good. Your competitors don't think you're that good. And so the question is, how can we, how can we make it so that it's so unreasonable for them to say, like, I used to, and this used to be in part of my marketing. I was like, people might say that they don't like our methods. I was like, but no one's ever said Jim doesn't make people money. What are the biggest mistakes? Or I would say, what is your advice to us to get to, for everyone under a million in revenue? to get to a million in revenue from like high level business principles. And then, and this is the, this is the key part that you were hundred percent qualified to answer on, get to a million in take home. Mm -hmm. Pretty much until about 3 million per year in revenue. Um, the advice pretty much holds, which is one product to one avatar on one channel. And here's what's hilarious. I'll bet you there's a bunch of people on here who have more than one thing going on. And they're probably also selling more than one product. They're also selling to more than one avatar. Let's think about this. If you could only pick one avatar to sell to and one product to sell them and only one way or one channel to access them, how much easier would your life be? How much more quantifiable and simple would that feel? 
Does anyone here even thinking about quitting all the side hustles that they're talking about or the half project that they think might become something? I'm doing these two kind of businesses. I'll see which one works out. The answer is either of them will work out, but neither of them with an N, neither of them will work if you try to do both. And so the issue is not even time. The issue is attention. You only have so much attention. You only have so much juju, right? There's only so much heat uh, and you have too many pans on. The heat's not concentrated enough. And so you got to put the juju on one problem because believe it or not, the guy who's crushing you, that's what he's doing. And so you're trying to compete with two hands tied behind your back against people who are putting every single ounce of their life into just solving one problem. If you do that, life gets a lot easier. And for me, I would rather make business easier than harder. And so that's kind of the idea. It's how can we stack the chips in our favor so that it would be unreasonable for us not to be successful? If you only had to solve one problem for one avatar and you only had one way that you were going to approach them, even if you didn't know how that channel worked, even if you weren't perfect to solving the problem, since you only have to do those things, you will, with enough iteration, solve it. And then the marketplace will reward you. What do you say that people need to keep in mind when it gets to that $1 million in take-home, which almost you know no one gets to? Even the people that are in freaking eight-figure land are spending seven hundred k a month on ads. What's, what's important to keep in mind there? What mistakes do people make when not, not making a profitable business? The lifetime gross profit per customer has to be higher. So to go from three to 10, you don't really need to change anything besides making sure the customer is more valuable. And you can do that by improving the product and just like if you have a recurring based business, it's reducing churn most of the time and optimizing pricing or adding a single, you know, high value additional, you know, service level, right? Um, and again, you might think, well, that's adding operational complexity. And the answer is yes, it is adding operational complexity, but people who make $10 million are more skilled than people who make $3 million. And so that is a skill that you need to acquire you know, in the path of getting there. Are there uh, exceptions? Absolutely. But these are kind of, I would say, broad-based for, and I'm talking specifically to high-ticket coaches who are in a niche, usually going from three to 10 million is going to include increasing the lifetime value of the customer in some way, either by introducing a backend or keeping them longer. The other piece of it from what you were saying earlier is that if you have to spend that much money on marketing, it means the product's not that good. Last question I have for you, Alex, because it's a big question. Why did you write the book and what's your new mission if it's not helping gyms be super profitable. Yeah, so right now we're just helping businesses that are doing about 5 million and up um, get to you know, 30, $50 million a year because now we've done it four times um, in the businesses that we own 100% of. And so now we're just doing it and participating um, in it. So we just invest in those companies. We basically function as um, a makeshift exec team. So we've got a CFO, COO, there's me, VP sales. And so all of those things basically function because usually at that $5 million level, the issue is you don't have enough talent, not enough experience. And so we can just go inject those in and then de-bottleneck all the things that we know because we've done that so many times. And so uh, in terms of the marketing perspective, I don't really have any desire to sell masterminds, coaches, or courses because I don't need to. You know what I mean? The businesses that we own already pump out tons of cash flow and I just don't need to do it, nor do I really have the desire. And so the idea was I'll just make basically, my goal is to make the best internet marketing business that exists and make everything free. And then if they're, you know, if someone wants to get to that, that next level, they've already proven themselves uh, able to execute on the concepts that we gave away for free, then it means that they're not going to need handholding from me, um, which means that I've proven that the information works because they executed on it and they've proven to me that they can do it. Um, and so it's kind of, it works off of shared, uh, shared trust right off the bat. And so that's, that's kind of the goal with the business. And the real, real is that I think that when I die, nothing's going to happen and that there's really no such thing as legacy. And if I have a hundred generations, people will forget who I am. And it makes me feel good. I love that. I'm like giving you so much up in one minute, guys. Um, please share some love to Alex. Uh, Alex, thank you so much. He is the man that has nothing to sell you. Plenty of people broke in the world. He doesn't want you to be one of them. So make sure you check him out and dive deeper into stuff. Alex, Appreciate your friendship. Appreciate your input. This has been amazing. Have a great day, dude.
Appreciate you guys. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to another episode of Scale School. I hope you found something valuable in today's episode. If you haven't already subscribed, go ahead and do that so you can be notified every time we drop future episodes. And if you and I have not already connected, feel free to track me down on any one of the social media platforms. My big head and smiling face are no doubt going to be there. And you can just search my name, Dan Bolton, and we can connect there. But thank you again for tuning in and I'll see you in a future episode.